Blog Talk Radio. J. Raven, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Yes, before the end of 2014, I felt it was very important to bring uh, today's guest on to A Better World to talk about some of the subjects that he specializes in, which are such matters as disaster preparedness uh, in general, but dealing with emergencies such as solar flares, natural types of disasters in particular. And that will be today's focus of the show, looking at uh, the whole potential of solar flares, solar storms, and what we could possibly uh, suffer as a result of them, what we could possibly be subject to relative to our electrical grid and, in short, our general way of life, which has become so grid-intensive and so electrically based. And we don't really realize how much we are tied in, entangled, so to speak, until it's taken away from us. So discuss this in depth. We have invited on to a better world today Matthew Stein, who is a design engineer, green builder, author of uh, two best-selling books, When Disaster Strikes, A Comprehensive Guide to Emergency Planning and Crisis Survival, and When Technology Fails, a manual, a bulky tome at that, for self-reliance, sustainability, and surviving the long emergency. He's also a mountain climber and serves as a guide and instructor for blind skiers. He's also written several articles on sustainable living and is a columnist also for the Huffington Post. Uh, Matthew Stein has also appeared on literally over a hundred different radio and television programs as a repeat guests, including Fox News, MSNBC, Gary Knoll, Coast to Coast, and uh, Thomas Hartman's show, many others as well. And now on A Better World for our audience, <clears throat> which actually overlaps with some of those he's already been on. But uh, the more we reach, the more people we reach with these really important subjects <clears throat> and uh, types of information, the better ultimately it will be. So, Matthew Sines, thanks so much for coming on to A Better World today. You're welcome, Mitchell. It's uh, really a pleasure to be on the show with you today. 
I'm so glad. Well, your work is very potent, um, and it really hits a chord for us all because we're all so tuned in to the way things are and our current lifestyles and the thought, the mere thought that there could be some kind of natural disaster to interrupt it is um, a very disturbing thought for most and most people don't even have a clue about it. But in fact, solar activity follows a very specific pattern, a very specific cycle that has been identified by astronomers and others for for actually a long while. And I was hoping you could detail what those cycles are, Matt, and give us an idea of where we stand today relative to them. Well, unfortunately, it's not as specific and predictable a cycle as you would like to think. I mean, every 11 years or so, the the poles flip on the sun, uh, the magnetic poles, and you have what's known as a solar maximum, and in between that, you have solar minimums. But these are just sort of general cycles that uh, they give us an idea of when there tends to be more solar activity and when there tends to be reduced solar activity. But for instance, we recently had a solar maximum that was like the quietest solar maximum on record. And then the maximums passed, and now we're having some pretty significant flares. For instance, earlier in the year, we had a solar flare that went right through the Earth's orbit and had we been two weeks earlier in our orbit when that flare came by, it would have nailed the Earth and ended life as as and ended civilization as we knew it at least for a number of years. And Ooh. that was so, so. That was like a a huge when event. When did that happen? And when did that? Happen? I, it was. I think it was last summer. It was. It, it, basically, the flare was bigger than the Carrington event, which was a flare that hit in 1859. It's named after the British astronomer that, that noticed the flares and the electromag- ensuing electromagnetic storm that, that hit the planet. And in 1859, they had two giant coronal mass ejections that came straight towards the Earth. And uh, one of them hit the Earth and just started two days and nights of an amazing, incredible light show where the sun, you know, you know, like in New York City, you would look out at night and the, and the sky would be lit up blood red, orange, green with gold streaks. I mean, just the most more amazing than Times Square on New Year's Eve, huh? <laughs> That's right. More A than Times Square. And, and it lit it up all the way to Puerto Rico and Hawaii from the North Pole to Puerto Rico and Hawaii and all the way from the South Pole to American Samoa. So the entire planet was lit up with amazing light show all night long, except for a very, do very narrow have, sliver. Do we have recorded records of this from different parts of the world where people oh, yeah. made note of this? It was written oh, up gosh. in newspapers? Oh, it was all over. Hikers got up in the middle of, at three in the mor- 2 in the morning in Colorado think, and started making breakfast thinking that daylight was, was breaking. Um, oh, people... People on steamships across the planet, you know, in the southern hemisphere, northern hemisphere, you know, were and there was cables saying how amazing this was. And see, this was sort of a one-two punch in 1859. It was one giant coronal mass ejection, and then just as things started electromagnetically slowing down, a second one hit the planet. And so for an entire week, it was a, it was seven ni- days and nights. It was electromagnetically lit up the planet, and it disrupted telegraphs. People were able to send telegraph signals without batteries. They they would unhook their batteries, and the induced currents 
from the electromagnetic storm was enough to allow them to send telegraphs around the planet without being hooked up to a power source. So, so it was pretty amazing. And, and it burned down. Like in, then there was a 1921 storm, which was 50% weaker than the Carrington event. And, and that was a huge solar storm with similar lighting up from the North Pole down to Hawaii and from the South Pole all the way to American Samoa. So both those storms, so we've had two giant storms in the last 160 years. So that's an average of 80 years apart. Now, as far as predictability, scientists basically have they've, they've looked at ice core samplings and they've they've got some kind of signature from that they can look at and determine how often these kind of major solar events happen and they're not like clockwork but they statistically average 75 to 100 years i mean there might be two 5 years apart and there might be two 200 years apart but the fact that they they now predict that there's a 1 in 8 chance for a major devastating solar storm every decade and you say well 1 in 8 chance that's not too bad and it's like but then think about it it's like if One in eight told, chance is not too bad. No, uh, well, in a decade, in a decade, every ten years we get a one in eight chance for a game over solar storm, and they're doing nothing about it. I mean, that's the silly thing, is that well, they've true. invented the technology to protect our grid, and they've determined that our grid is totally vulnerable and can be completely can be taken down for a very long period of time by one of these big solar storms. And so, what they did was. The government got get very concerned about EMP, electromagnetic pulse, meaning tip, which is typically sort of um, assigned to uh, some country lets off a nuclear weapon on purpose to destroy the electronics in the United States. And yes. so, say like North Korea or you know a rogue country, perhaps some you know Islamic you know ISIS might get their hands. It might might infiltrate, say, the Pakistani government and get a, a a good sized nuke and missile out of there and and blow it off of the United States and and I'll talk about the differences. It, the solar storms yeah. and the nuclear EMP are are similar and related, but not identical. There's there's different responses to both of them. So um, so let's kind of focus first on the solar storm. And so what they they got worried about the potential for uh, a nuclear EMP or a, or a natural EMP or a solar, you know, called a solar storm, to disrupt so the grid. Is so, an electromagnetic? But what is an electromagnetic pulse? Okay, electromagnetic pulse is typically assigned to a nuclear device. What happens is if you blow off a nuclear device in the upper atmosphere, then it it induces an electromagnetic pulse in the atmosphere. You have gamma rays that interact with, with the atmosphere, and they superionize it, and you have this electromagnetic pulse. So when you blow off a device, you have three different effects. You have an E1, which is like a speed of light effect. It's like a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a blink of an eye. And okay. what that one is, is similar to is taking opening up your computers and rubbing your feet on the carpet on a cold winter's day and sticking yeah. your finger inside and sparking a bunch of the chips and saying, gee, I wonder what that did. And and that's what the an E1 effect of the electromagnetic pulse is like. It's like it's causing electrostatic sparks, inducing them like all over in electronics equipment, and especially electronics equipment that has connections of wires. So if you have like an iPhone, chances are it's going to be okay that the electromagnetic pulse isn't going to do it. 
the mm-hmm. problem is that all of the electronics that makes our world go round, that's connected with, with networked with network wires, that's connected like our, our remote control and data acquisition, they're called SCADA, sensing control and data acquisition systems that runs all of our factories, runs our nuclear power plants, runs our pollution treatment plants, runs our oil refineries. All of that stuff is going to fry. So, you know, your iPhone's probably going to be fine. Your, your your TV may 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 be okay. Um, your now, what cars, difference will that make if the nuclear plants um, were oh, to worry so about go up in smoke? <laughs> well, the, so the problem apparently is, that's so, what so, the government is saying. You know? Yeah. So well, apparently, it's kind of, sort of. It, it's sort of one of those things where it's so scary they don't want to think about it. So it's it's sort of like those. But you those said nasty the technology. But you said the technology exists to avert, to protect, like some right. kind of massive surge protector. Right. So, so let me talk about the E1, E2, and E3 effects real quick so you understand them. Sure, so then, please. So, so the E1 effect happens like in, in a fraction of a blink of an eye. And then the E2 effect happens over the next like half second to two, two, two seconds or so. And that's like 10,000 lightning bolts hitting every square mile. You know, all over the affected area of the nuclear blast. Now, now, how big is an EMP? So, if you've got like a small suitcase bomb and you put it on a Scud missile and you blow it off, like say, you know, ten or twenty miles above the planet, which is about as high as a Scud missile could go, or five miles up, then you're going to see maybe the five hundred mile circle. So that's enough to like draw a circle around Boston, New York City, Washington D.C. So you know, pretty significant zone. If you've got a really big bomb. Like, like you know, what North Korea keeps trying to make, but what Pakistan already has, what, you know, all the Soviet failed states of the Soviet Union, you know, they have tons of those. So, you know, you could easily assume, imagine some terrorists getting their hands on one of those or, you know, some Saudi Arabian sheik, you know, saying, hey, here's $50 million, go go buy a missile and, and you know, go buy some scientists who program it so we can do it. Then mm-hmm. you're drawing like a 1,500-mile circle. So take this circle and draw it around Quebec City, Canada, and Ottawa, Ontario, and all the way down to Miami Beach in Florida and through the middle of Texas. So you've got the entire eastern seaboard of the United States and Chicago. Basically, you have three-quarters of the population and the nuclear power plants in the United States within this circle. And so now the E3 effect then happens between about about a minute, you know, 30 seconds or a minute later to about 15 or 20 minutes later. And what that does, it's kind of like a long, slow burn. And it's, the E3 effect is essentially this, identical to the effect of a solar storm. The solar storm doesn't have the E1 and E2 effects of the of the nuclear blast, the nuclear EMP. But it but the E3 effect is essentially identical. The difference being that a solar storm is going to cover most of the northern and southern hemispheres except for the deep tropical zones. So the southern states, you know, like Texas is connected more to the Mexican grid than the American grid for some reason. I, mm-hmm. I don't understand, but I've been told that that's true. Curious. So so Texas will probably do pretty well in the solar storm. Um, you know, and he, so so the good news about the solar storm is that most all of the small electronics that makes our world work is still working. The bad news is that these giant transformers that interconnect our grid—they're called extra high voltage transformers. Those things are going to cook in in both a solar storm and in an EMP. You say, well, so what if you lose a transformer? Right? You can go down to the hardware store and buy another transformer. It's like, well, no. 
these massive transformers, these extra high voltage transformers, they do from a quarter of a million volts to a million volts, you know, and they're what steps the power up and transports it. When you see those giant towers with there's like mile between the towers and you know they're they're mm-hmm. hundreds of feet tall, those towers are so that we can trans we can interconnect the grid and move lots of energy long distances at high efficiency. The downside is that that high efficiency is great for like transporting energy and not wasting it in heat and not throwing money down the drain, but they're mm-hmm. super vulnerable to both the solar storms and the EMP. So the government got real worried about this and they sponsored a, a study back in oh six seven years ago, and they had the EM the Global EMP Commission. It was bipartisan. And it was headed by a Dr. William Graham. I keep wanting to call him Billy Graham, but that's a different doctor. So Dr. William Graham was Ronald Reagan's chief science advisor. He was he had 30 years in the Department of Defense nuclear program. You mean besides his astrologer? He's a nuclear physicist. And Dr. William Graham and I came to the same conclusions totally independently after Fukushima. We both realized that in the event of a solar storm or an EMP that we're going to see long-term grid down situation we're going to see fuel backup fuel running out for nuclear power plants and that if we do not plan ahead and one of these things happens we're going to have multiple Fukushima like events all around the country and so he wrote a letter to Congress actually I have his letter here he wrote a letter to Congress and in that letter you know, he warned about this. He wrote it and he addressed it to Obama and the energy, Obama's energy minister and all these different people. And he warned about the when, possibility. What of, year was this? This what is 2011. This, this is October okay. of 2011. He sent this letter to Congress. And here's the guy who was Reagan's chief science advisor and the head of the bipartisan congressional EMP commission. And they still didn't listen. So, did I mean, it's very discouraging. Did they reply? Did they reply well, yeah, whatsoever? I mean, they, they reply. It's it's kind of like when, for 50 years, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers said, hey, New Orleans is going to flood. The levees are going to fail. It's not a question of if they get hit by a hurricane. It's a question but of when. when. Yeah, it's like the Galveston hurricane that, that killed 12,000 people drowned in Galveston in, like, 1906 or whenever it was, you know, sometime in the early part mm-hmm. of the century. That... You know, that size hurricane was guaranteed to fail the levees. And the, and the Army Corps of Engineers said, you know, hey, this this is a disaster waiting to happen, and we can fix it. And they talked about it for 50 years, and they never did it. And then it's like, oh, wow, I didn't think that was going to happen. It's like, no, that's, that's a crock of bull, because they it's were warned exactly that this is going to happen. Yeah. And they just didn't yeah. do it. So we're in the same boat right now, only we're not talking about... So in other words, city. Katrina Katrina was the same phenomenon. The... The political deniers, or right. at least ignorers, of true scientifically arrived at uh, uh, conclusions or That's probabilities correct. are completely disregarded, i.e., that is, on behalf of the American people. That is correct. So, so what happened then is, is you know, they, they had this EMP commission said, hey, this is a problem. And then NERC, North American Electric Reliability Corporation, sponsored a, a big conference inviting people in and saying, hey, let's look at what threats there are to the grid, you know, because that's our business. And they determined in the conference, and they published a report based on the conference called the HILF Report, High Impact Low Frequency, 
report, and they said that the EMP and solar storms are the two black swan events that are most likely to happen with most devastating effects, and we need to do something about it. So then Congress goes and looks at it, and, and some people sponsor various acts, but the most recent one called the Shield Act, which says, "Hey, we're going to we're going to re we're going to implement the safeguards into our grid so that we don't have full on grid collapse and the end of the world as we know it." Um, in the event of a solar storm, at least for a short period of time. Now, so they sponsored this, and they said, okay, you know, we got to do this. Now what happens is the SHIELD Act says private industry is going to pony up the $2 billion to upgrade the grid, and government can mm-hmm. be petitioned for at later if they have troubles getting their money from their constituents, they can ask the government for bailout. So what does industry do? They say, well, wait a minute, you know, we don't have $2 billion sitting around. That's like our profit margin, and, you know, we're privatized now. We're mm-hmm. not all in the public interest. So, you know, it's like the the bottom line is really important when you're privatized. So so what do they do is they write up a paper, and they say everything's okay. Don't worry. Way, let, me just in, let me interrupt you for one moment. That's a very interesting comment. Now that we are privatized, we're no longer in the public interest, when in fact – uh, to be able to incorporate is a privilege of a state, and it's designed to be in um, service to the constituents of a given state or more. So they actually have that wrong. To be privatized means to continue your service to the people as a privilege, as uh, you know, a privilege of the state. It's just in a different format. Well, you know. I honestly think that guys at NERC want to want to do the right thing, but they basically fired the guys who wrote the Hilf report saying what what a problem this was, and they got new guys to write a report saying everything's okay. So then they went to Congress, and Congress says, wow, this is great news that everything's okay. This is terrific. Thank you. They said, well, what new modeling did you do? Oh, we didn't do any. Well, what about the, the computer models that Meditech did under the – under the you know auspices of the Oak Ridge National Labs and Sandia National Labs, and is sponsored by Homeland, Department of Homeland Security. What about that study? They said, well, you know, that's that's uh, proprietary code. We can't read the code, so we can't really evaluate it. And well, but how come everything's okay? Well, we just talked amongst ourselves, and we decided we had it covered. Now, here's the truth of the matter: in 1989, a solar storm that was one tenth as strong as the 1921 storm which was 50% weaker than the 1859 storm. But they're basing their computer modeling on the 1921 storm because they're saying those are the ones that come around every 75 to 100 years, whereas the 19, the 1859 Carrington event, that was you know the mother of all known solar storms, that's yes. more like a 500-year event. You know, and so they weren't yeah. as so worried about a 500-year event as a you know less than a 100-year event, especially mm-hmm. since it's been... You know, they're, they're estimating a one in eight chance every decade, and it's been nine decades since the last one, and it was six decades before that to the one before that. So they're basically saying, we're due. You know, it, it, it's not yes. like clockwork. You can't predict it. It's kind of more like a crap shot. You're rolling the dice, and one of these days yes. you get snake eyes and you lose. So for $2 bucks, we could implement um, new technology that would shunt these you know giant currents that get induced from the solar storm or an EMP that that would 
switch at, at nanoseconds, and they would, they're like giant vacuum tubes that switch in nanoseconds that would shunt this huge amount of energy traveling down these, giant, you know, these high-tension power lines, and it would shunt it around these transformers into Earth and protect the transformers. Now, so what NERC did was they came out and they said, oh, we're going to publish a, we're going to protect everybody by this paper trail. So we're going to publish a procedure that should be followed in the event of a solar storm or an EMP. And so, uh, you know, everybody, we're going to spend like, you know, $50,000 a year training people in all the utilities around the country on implementing this paper trail. And, how much? And everybody who does the paper how much? trail 50, will not 50, be liable. 50000 how much did you say? Like 50000 bucks a year or something like that for the nation, you know. So okay. so what they do, now they have, so, so here's what happened. In 1989, we had a solar storm that was 10%, one-tenth the strength of the 1921 storm. One-tenth as strong mm-hmm. is what they're saying is, is, you know, what they're planning on damaging things. And in that storm, in the, and, I'm, and this is from a paper that John Kappenman wrote, and it was published in IEEE, which is International you know, Electrical Engineering. Engineering, right. And, yeah, and, it, and so it's a big technical journal, and, and he published this. It's called A Perfect Storm of Planetary Proportions. And Kappenman was the author of the Meditech study, which, which was you know, sponsored by Homeland Security and Oak Ridge National yes. Labs to look at this. And he said yes. in the first 30 seconds of the 1989 storm, the Quebec grid experienced 15 simultaneous failures, and the unsurprising result was a province-wide blackout. So here is a storm that's a baby storm compared to the night, what, what they're saying we're overdue for. And it, yes. not, it, it blew one of these massive transformers, called 15 smaller failures and one massive transformer failure in Quebec, and the entire province is blacked out. A couple million people without power you know, for up to two days. It blew one of these massive transformers outside of Three Mile Island, like, in, you know, in, in the United States, and it blew one in the U.K. And we we had minor blackouts in the U.K. and minor blackouts in the East Coast and a major blackout in Quebec. Now, they're predicting, the, the, the Meditech study predicts 370 transformers, not one, not two, not three, you know, we had three in three separate countries from the 1989 storm, but they're talking 370 in the United States. Now, I asked Captain Man, well, how many do you think is in the world? And he said, well, we didn't study that. And I said, what do you think, 2,000? He said, yeah, that'd be a good guess. So here's the tick. Here's the ticket. Mm-hmm. It's going to take 10 years. At today's manufacturing capacity, it would take 10 years working for the next 10 years to replace the transformers that would blow in a single major solar storm. Now, mm. look, let's, let's look at what happened. In South Africa in 2006, they had a storm that was even weaker than the 1989 storm, but it has longer duration, and for some reason it hit the grid really heavily in South Africa. It caused 14 of these transformers to blow. Now, 14 transformers went down. The entire country, the only way they could function for a year was rolling blackouts. Imagine going to work, and for six or seven hours of your day, Three or four days a week, you have no elevators, no air conditioning, no lights, no refrigeration, nothing. You know, for every, every, you know, several days a week, and that's for fourteen. It took the world a year to rush. You know, to, these are custom designed, custom made. Tens, to replace those tens, transformers, ten million yeah. bucks a piece, hundreds of tons each. You got to shut down a freeway to deliver them. It took the world 
a year, and the world was working just fine. It was only South Africa that was nailed to to replace those 14 transformers. Now imagine if all of the places in the world that make these transformers are crippled just the same as the United States is crippled. How long is it going to take the world to put them back together? Or or, and, or South Africa, right. And aren't most of these transformers at this point manufactured uh, virtually singularly in China? They're manufactured in Brazil, in China, in various places of the world. But we did a huge program to upgrade our transformers from the less efficient, older, lower-voltage transformers to these extra-high-voltage ones. So from about mm-hmm. 1970 to 2003, we basically revamped and, and redid all our tra- you know long-power transmission transformers in this country. So as, since then, we've had like you know, once in a blue moon, one wears out and blows out, and they replace it. So there is no manufacturing facility in the United States to make these anymore, and the guys who know how to make them have, you know, died or retired. So we we so don't there, have that does capability. Exist. There's, so I, I understand the picture that you're painting, Matt Stein, which is essentially that if 14 transformers were blown in a... Uh, a rather small, relatively speaking, incident that occurred in South Africa. That was in 1996, you said? No, that was uh, like 2006. It was either 2003 okay. or 2006. Yeah. 2000, okay. When that happened, with all of the uh, disaster that that uh, created for a relatively small microcosm of an issue, what would it mean, of course, you're implying, for the rest of the world if we had anything of a a higher level occurring, something more uh, more potent in more places, it would really be wiping out the world as we know it, civilization as we know it, which is completely electrically uh, built. Yeah, it, means, it means all uh, of our many, manufacturing. For literally many years. Yes, all of our manufacturing, our stock markets, business, you know, the Internet, all of that is down for long periods of time. Now, it... The Meditech study doesn't say that every part the grid is destroyed in every part of the country, but basically, it, there's large parts of the country where it'll be down long term, like months, yeah. many months to years, and there's other parts of the country where they're more isolated. There's smaller populations. If they have local manufacturing, you know, power generating capability, and smart engineers, they'll be able to disconnect themselves from the main grid and restart smaller pockets of the grid. But in the big areas where there's dense populations, in, uh, except for perhaps as far south as like Florida and you know Georgia and, and Texas, um, most of the states, highly populated states, the density will be such that the, the, there'll be so much damage that there won't be any restarting the grid. I mean, it just it's just not going to restart for a long, long time with, without major work. And then the part of the problem is that all of our... See, when when you look at Fukushima and what happened, offic- the official explanation is not that the earthquake directly caused the meltdowns in those three reactors that melted down. See, there's six reactors at Fukushima, and when the earthquake hit, the grid went down immediately. And now, nuclear reactors are designed to automatically go into emergency shutdown mode when as soon as the grid goes down because they're making so much power and energy they can't like they have to feed it into a grid that's using it they can't just throw that energy 
to nowhere. So they basically, if the grid's down, they have to turn themselves off. But it's not like flicking a switch. It's not like, oh, you just turn the light switch and the nuclear power plant goes off. It starts slowing down the reaction. So these massive cooling pumps have to kick in with backup power systems to keep the pumps going, to keep the water flowing through the reactor core and keep dumping that heat from the reactor core, or they're going to melt themselves down. So when Fukushima hit, the grid went down instantly, and so you had four of the six reactors were functioning. Two of them were shut down for refueling. The fuel doesn't last forever. Every couple of years, they've got to refuel those things, take the old rods out. Mm-hmm. They still don't really know what to do with them, so they just store them on site generally. And then they put the other rod, new, new hot rods back in. So for the four reactors, they, their backup generator systems and pump systems kicked in and was successfully keeping the reactors going in emergency shutdown mode. But then 20 minutes later, the tsunami came along, and five of the six backup generator and pump banks were located on the ocean side of the reactors, so they got wiped out by the tsunami. And only reactor number six had a functioning pump and generator system left. So they were able to shunt the power, you know, valiant, courageous workers, and then luckily it happened during the day. It would have been way worse if it happened at night. There would have been – actually, there would have been – seven or eight nuclear facilities that went down, just like Fukushima, that would have gone melted down, and Japan would have been gone if if it had oh. happened at night instead of the day. Because, because they lost pumps and generators in seven or eight facilities, and they had so many people. It happened during working hours when they had mm-hmm. thousands of workmen on site, rather than at night when they'd have a skeleton crew. So those people were able to do their magic and keep keep those reactors from melting down in all but the Fukushima reactors, where the damage was worse. So so um, they were able to keep, you know, reactor number six from melting down at all because the pump and generator system was working. They shunted power to reactor number five, so they had a partial meltdown in reactor number five. But the other two reactors, um, they weren't able to get there in time and, and work their magic and get things going in time. So within 15 minutes, they had, they had uh, melted down. And then what happens is you you see when the core they're, – they're encased in all of this concrete and steel that's designed to hold all the bad stuff inside. The problem is you've got a lot of really smart engineers, you know, who are analyzing stuff, guys like me at MIT. I went to MIT, and friends of mine mm-hmm. were in the nuclear engineering department. And, you know, they, they're really smart guys, and they do their calculations, and they, they, you know, plan for try to plan for the worst. The thing is that they can't do real – studies of real reactor failures because that's in a real time right yeah. and so it's all it's like all theoretical. Rather academic yeah so what happened in in this reactor we all saw those explosions on tv so what happens is the reactor loses its cooling and it starts getting super hot in there and it starts melting all the stuff so when it does that it gets so hot it starts dissociating the water into hydrogen and oxygen it starts splitting the water like electrolysis and the hydrogen and oxygen. And that floated up inside the reactor containment vessel, and it recombined the hydrogen and oxygen gases, and they exploded and and fractured the containment vessel. So the vessel that was designed to keep all the nasty stuff inside in the event of a a problem failed. It, It didn't contain the problem. And and yes. and these these events have been predicted as being like one in a trillion failures. You know, the the, the statistical engineers 
statistical analysis failure, failure analysis yeah. predicted like amazing odds, like it's never going to happen. Well, we've now had four serious nuclear accidents in the world that were supposed to be one in trillions. So, so they're off by a factors of like a million to one in their Huge. failure analysis. Huge. We've had yeah. Chernobyl, we've had Three Mile Island, and we've had two. Island. We've had three failures at Fukushima. So there's so that's a total of five failures. Now, only you know Three Mile Island melted down, but it they. And by the it, way, it, it those are the ones that are most. Those are the ones that are most publicized. There have well, been had, others of oh, yeah. lesser degree, for instance, on the West Coast in California and elsewhere, where we oh, have yeah. had rather serious nuclear issues. Oh, yeah. In fact, they, they found that the, you know, they refurbished the, the West Coast reactor in California with tubes, and they found that the tubes were having... Um, corrosive failure at 10 times the predicted rate and yeah. they they've shut down the reactor and so it's like these reactor tubes lasted one tenth as long as they were supposed to and if they hadn't been keeping an eye on them they could have had a cat- catastrophic failure then long before their their scheduled replacement date they would have t- catastrophically failed but somehow they were someone was able to figure out that these things were were you know that there was some dynamic corrosive there, there was it was kind of like water hammer happening. Only it was happening. Let's let everyone know that uh, you are listening to. Let's let everyone know you are listening to uh, a better world with Mitchell J. Rabin. We're on every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Please let your friends know about the kind of material that we cover here and why they should be listening to, or just forward them the link. Uh, today we are spending the entire show with Matt. Stein, an MIT-trained mechanical engineer who has written a couple of books uh, related to uh, dealing with catastrophes, with disasters, when uh, technology fails, specifically when disaster strikes, a comprehensive guide to emergency planning and crisis survival, as well as when technology fails a manual for self-reliance, sustainability, and surviving the long emergency. In short, folks, uh, we are living our lives with our iPhones or galaxies, ho, 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 uh, glued to our eyeballs and running around the world in such ways that we are essentially oblivious to the larger cycles that are occurring to which we are subject. For instance, today's subject of solar flares, solar storms, and electromagnetic pulses. And all of these could have a catastrophic effect on life as we know it here on planet Earth. And so today's show with Matt Stein is designed to educate you all about these other cycles and these other potentials, and we haven't gotten there yet, but will, uh, to how can we be prepared? Because there are very real ways that we can be both prepared collectively and individually, and that is the subject of our show. Also, if you don't yet get our newsletter, make sure you do at www.abetterworld.tv. TV. It's free. It announces our three weekly shows, a Monday evening television show 
here in Manhattan in New York City uh, Tuesday uh, afternoon on Progressive Radio Network where we uh, look at different progressively minded films and documentaries and talk about the subjects uh, that they are addressing, largely environmental as well as social justice and on, and A Better World Radio every Wednesday at 6 p.m., although everything is available, pretty much everything, in archive. So Matt Stein, I'm so glad to have you on today's show and talking about these rather grueling but incredibly important subjects. And uh, I so appreciate the work that you have done in it, and now you're educating our audience. So let's pick up where you left off, and then I want to circle back to a little bit more of a historical view and then uh, ask a few questions beyond that. Okay. Well, so, you know, it it can be kind of – it can be – a real downer to approach this. Or you can say, okay, what can we do? You mentioned, you know, what can we do individually and collectively? So I want to talk about the collectively thing first, because the fix is, you know, there's no way to prevent everything bad from happening from an EMP or a solar storm. But we can harden the grid so it's not a catastrophic failure from both of them. And that's about the price of a single B-2 stealth bomber, you know, a couple billion bucks. And for another billion bucks or so, we could we could provide we could mandate that each and every nuclear installation we have 104 nuclear you know active nuclear reactors in the United States, and we could mandate that each and every one of them has a year's supply of backup fuel on hand and has EMP hardened containers with backup generators and pumps and you know whatever they need so that if stuff is damaged that we can you know workers can move stuff around and keep these things cooled so we don't have dozens of fukushima like events happening across the country just you know making the united states go away forever so that's a cheap solution you know this is like a day in the war a day of the iraq war you know would solve yes. this problem i mean we're we're so not that's talking about that 2 billion that the private that the private sector was asked to come up with they basically balked on and never came up with it so the solution the technological solution which is in hand was never implemented is that correct that's correct that's correct they balked on it and they basically paid their lobbyists to spread you know misinformation and misinformation, say everything's yeah. okay and we don't really need to do this and don't worry about it we have it covered and they did this feel good do nothing act um that FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, commissioned NERC, the National Energy Regulatory uh, Reliability Corporation, they commissioned the private company to write the act, you know, to to write the the guidelines for what to do in the event of an EMP or solar storm. And it's a a feel-good act. It says, oh, we got it covered, we wrote this thing, there's a procedure, there's a protocol, and and everything's going to be okay. But it doesn't do anything. And and if there was 15 failures in the first 30 seconds, you know, from a storm that was a baby storm compared to the ones we're talking about in 1989, Mm -hmm. then, of course, this paper trail isn't going to protect us, isn't going to do a damn thing, isn't going to... prevent the grid from collapsing, isn't going to prevent anything from failing. It's just going to take take the liability hook off private industry and let's say, well, we did what we were told to do. You know, they told us to follow these guidelines, and we did them, so you can't fault us. Yes. Um, that's basically yes. where we are. So if you want to learn more and get active, um, if you go to my website, whentechfails.com, in the front, there will be the start of an article, 400 Chernobyls, and that's the article I wrote to when I started researching this this problem. And, and it, 
I planned on spending a week in the article, and I spent six weeks with no pay, working like night and day, researching and writing, and mm. I just couldn't stop. I kept hoping it would get better, and it just got worse and worse. And I had a 14-inch tall stack of documents I printed out when I was doing the research on this. And mm. so there's hot links to all of the most important documents within the article, and then there's links for action at the end of the article. So, I mean, this is something that we could, you could talk to your neighbors, talk to your congressmen, and we could make a difference. We could prevent the end of the world as we know it by getting our country to do the right thing and not be so like I Hurricane happen Katrina. to know, Matt, I happen to know just myself, uh, uh, actually a good friend of mine was uh, at the beginning of the formation of a uh, company that was ba- built around uh, technology which is essentially, uh, you know, a terrestrial-level surge protector, which specifically is designed to neutralize the effect of solar flares or electromagnetic pulse. And I also... Sorry? Do you know Curtis, then, with... uh, Curtis... Bernbach? Uh, In Westchester County? Advanced, yeah, I think Advanced Fusion Systems... That's correct. Oh, okay. Interesting. That's yep, correct. Same yeah. uh, I don't know him. I don't know him, but I know the uh, fellows who first formed the company before it got kind of taken over by some uh, some larger, very high, uh, well-connected, high-level uh, businessmen who uh, are the ones who are able to kind of bring it into the halls of uh, of Congress, etc. Yes, yes, yes. Exactly that. Uh, And I also happen to uh, be connected to a technology that can insulate from nuclear waste uh, that is not made of concrete, but a much safer insular material that would help to deflect that kind of issue. But in both cases, neither of these technologies have yet been really implemented for any number of different political or financial um, reasons. Now, of course, when you say the private sector uh, sort of did an end run around, you know, the FERC uh, findings, you know, it's, it's kind of uh, amusing on one hand, in a sick kind of way, that they act as though they are immune from the effects of such a catastrophe, which, of course, they're no more immune than anyone else on the earth, yet uh, they're so short-sighted that that they wouldn't actually pony up, as you said, the dollars needed for the protection, even for the longevity of their own and profitability of their own um, investments and company. They are apparently not willing to uh, come up with the dollars. Well, part of the problem well, is that I've given up using that, logic in situations like this. You know, yeah. you, part of the problem is is that you have voices, you have people running things that are not technical. You know, they're business yes. and bean counters, and they're bottom dollar oriented. And then you Very have so. you, and then the technical people are not all a hundred percent in line and in sync. So what the problem is, then you'll have some people saying, "Well, I think we got it covered. I think we're okay." And other people saying no, and 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 there's enough yes, confusion that yeah. people listen to the voice they want to hear. They want to believe yes. that everything's going to be okay. That's a they, very you know, it's, good it's, point. It's, we all want to believe that those this scientists the are, have, have it covered. 
That's right. This is the human factor, and you're making a very good point because this shows up everywhere. It shows up in the conversation about global warming. It shows up in every single conversation about military protection, how much do we need, how much can we put into the domain of diplomacy. That's a little bit more of a soft science issue. But But, but think about the Iraq War. Remember, it was going to be be over in a few weeks. They were going to welcome us. $70 million, by the way. Yeah, it was going to be democracy Bush, was so. going to win, you know, and everything was going to be hunky-dory, you know. I mean, oh, yeah. that's what people want to hear, you know, and you tell them what they want to hear, and good chance you're going to get the money and the support you need, you know. Exactly. Or if you're a politician, all you have to do is use a word. I've decided I know what that word is. Jobs. <laughs> I'm, I'm it doesn't the have to have any reality. You just have to say the word jobs in a public arena, and all of a sudden people like, you know, like flies to honey say, oh, really? Sign me oh, up. Oh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, that was that so is... good for the economy, right? The, the world economy just did Oh, my God. Yeah, true. So anyway, coming back around, let, let's just take another historical look at the phenomenon so we can outline the cycles and where they're more accurate and where they're a little fuzzier because it seems that there is this period of time. I remember hearing you speak of this on uh, – on Gary Knoll's program once, that this is a particular window of time when the probability is greater for a possible solar uh, storm and solar flare um, that could be, um, you know, kind of the trajectory be the Earth. So I really sort of want to outline that. But also, if we're looking at several different cycles, we're looking at a 500-year cycle, so to speak. We're looking at one that's more like a... 40- or 50-year cycle you mentioned, and then there's sort of an 11-year cycle, and then there's the probability of a disaster hitting of this ilk from this source uh, about one in eight of every 10 years of every decade. So when you accumulate those series of longer, longer time cycles with shorter, that brings us to where? It's basically the only predictability. Last year, 2014, and we're looking at 2014, 2015, and 2015. You can't tell. The only predictability is the 11-year cycle. And and a year, you know, two years, a year or so ago, when we had the last solar maximum, was the quietest maximum on, you know, in in hundreds of years. On record, you said. And yet, after the maximum, it's ramping up and it's quite active. So it's really a crapshoot. It's really just a dice. It's really looking at historically one in a chance every decade. It's been nine decades since the last one. It was six decades between the you know the the Carrington event and the last one. So you just do the math and you say you know I our number is going to be up one of these days. I mean there's there's really no way to say that it's going to happen more chance or less chance now. It's just basically statistically speaking we're due and. That's that's the best I can tell you. You know, that's I don't want to strike more fear into no, it. That's fair. If we're lucky, sure. We're, if we're lucky, we're going to get an event like the South African event that's going to be devastating, but not totally crippling, and it's going to cause enough problems that you know it'll wake the country up and they'll say, "Wow, you know, we've really got to fix this." Before the next one hits and and it's everything's gone and nuclear power plants are melting down all over. If we're lucky, that's the scenario. If we're lucky. No terrorist ever launches a nuclear EMP attack because in the nuclear EMP, you're going to see in the affected area, you're going to see 
nu- nuclear power plants melting down like in 15 minutes after an EMP. I mean, chances are. See, when we did we did EMP test called the Starfish Prime in 1960 or 61, and they blew off this nuclear device over Johnston Island, which is like 500 miles south of Hawaii, and the. Nobel-winning nuclear physicist who predicted the strength of the EMP, because, you know, they'd never really studied one before, he was off mm-hmm. by a factor of 10. So all of their devices on the sh- battleships and stuff studying this were decked. They they had to get their measurements from Honolulu because you had to get that far enough away that the instruments weren't all maxed out and, and you know, overblown. It's like trying to t- – if, if you've got a, a speedometer that goes to 60 – and you're going 120 miles an hour. You get no no idea how fast you're going based on your speedometer. Yeah, because it goes that. beyond right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, when mm-hmm. the Soviets did their EMP test, they did it over Kazakhstan. Now, Kazakhstan, mm-hmm. being much further and closer to the North Pole, had a much more severe EMP effect. Roughly four times as powerful of an EMP effect in Kazakhstan as it was in Johnston. Because the closer you are to the equator, the less of an electromagnetic influence you have. I mean, think about like the, the the two poles on a horseshoe magnet that you you know as a yes, kid. Yes, I just put, put that together bars. exactly. Yeah. So so right. the, all of the iron filings stick. To You've, the got polarity. Polarity. You've got Nothing less polarity. You've got less polarity, so you have less effect. Right. The north and south pole cancel themselves out in the middle, so there's like no magnetic strength yes. field in the middle. So you have a much weaker EMP effect in the more tropical zones than you do in the further north. So when they blew mm-hmm. off this EMP in Kazakhstan, they put a whole bunch of generators. Now, these, the, the devices that are far more susceptible to EMP are modern devices with chips because the traces on the chips are so close to each other that the, the induced electromagnetic, you know, electrostatic effects tend to short out those traces on the chips because they're they're so close. So everyone says get get devices that are older that are like pre you know pre nineteen eighty when it's all like electronic pre electronic ignition when it's the old old style. So in Kazakhstan, this is nineteen sixty, this is all the quote robust stuff. Well they put a whole bunch of generators out, you know, military generators because they figured they were going to knock out the grid locally. And what happened blew their minds. All those, almost essentially, all those robust diesel power generators got fried by the EMP. There was a power line that was buried two meters, that's six feet in the ground. There's a thousand kilometer line power line, trunk line, bringing power from a power generating plant to power the grid in that part of Kazakhstan. It's a very remote part of Kazakhstan. And that was bringing power from a power plant 600 miles away. The induced electromagnetic effect on that trunk line buried two meters underground was enough to burn down the power plant 1,000 kilometers, 600 miles away. So when you think like, oh, we're fine, our stuff is going to handle this EMP just fine, it's like, no, all of our modern stuff is far more susceptible to EMP than the stuff the Soviets had in the Kazakhstan EMP test, and yet their stuff, which is like 100 times more robust than the modern stuff with chips in it, that stuff all fried. So the chances that anything is going to be able to control a nuclear power plant after an EMP, from you know, that's a nuclear EMP, not a solar one. Remember, the EMP has the E1, E2, and E3 effects. The solar one only has basically the E3 effect. So the chances that so clearly we're going to the, have the electromagnetic the electromagnetic pulse can be a good deal more severe. 
in a smaller area. Than the solar flare. Right. Yeah. The good news is you have the rest of the world to send the cavalry in to help put the pieces back together in the event of an yeah. EMP. The bad news is that it, locally it's going to be much more devastating. All of, Essentially, all of the digital control systems that makes the Internet run, that makes our factories run, our oil refineries, our sewage plants, you know, all of that stuff that you know, yes. looks at things digitally, that's all going to cook. And so all of it's yeah. going to be fried. There won't be enough spare parts in the world to fix that stuff for a long time. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, just from a single EMP, there's not enough stuff in the world to go and fix, just, just run in and fix it and make it better. It's just not going to happen. But the, but the good is, news is at least the rest of the world is there to send in supplies and food and military and, you know, and, and, and send in portable things to try and provide at least a minimum for people. The bad the news other, is the other you're probably going to have nukes melting down everywhere. The other point, though, is, uh, if I understood you correctly earlier, that the EMP is something that is is man-induced. Man-induced, correct. So totally unpredictable. It, you... It's essentially a military, it's a military uh, weapon. Yeah, it's a military weapon. It's like for relatively low dollars, you could collapse the stock market, collapse Washington, D.C., and, you know, wipe out, like with a big bomb, you could wipe out three quarters of the country's manufacturing, and you know, and and cripple three quarters of the population will have no access to food, clean food, you know, to food, refrigeration, yeah. um, water treatment, sewage treatment, all of that will be shut yeah. down. And sort for of a the necessities bomb, of urban living. At least yeah, for a smaller bomb, yeah. you're talking like just t- only taking out Washington D.C., New York City, Boston. You know, the, the the Northeast Corridor with a smaller bomb, or Silicon Valley. You know, with a smaller bomb. You know, 60 Minutes, Matt, some years ago, uh, did a, uh, a segment on the NSA several years ago, and the gentleman who was being interviewed said, uh, in reality. A 16-year-old with some hacking skills with a $500 or $700 laptop could bring down a country by uh, interceding into its water supply um, and controlling, disabling the pumps that run the water and then run the electricity. And, you know, it, it would take nothing for, uh, you know, it takes about probably 20 to 30 minutes for that to occur. And I thought it was always so very interesting in light of our multi-trillion dollar budget in military expenditures over, you know, a short period of time, a few years, and our entire military prowess and all of this. And all we need is a, you know, a thousand dollar laptop and a 16 year old kid with some hacking skills. And, uh, you know, you can so-called win the war, you know, even if that's exaggerated by a little bit. You know, that is essentially, and what is going on in, in cyberspace is really um, a full-fledged war taking place without the use of a single bullet. That's and correct. here, what you're talking about is something that is comparable to that kind of, it's a parallel world to the cyber war that's going on. And well, the old and the- fashioned dinosaur style military that uh every nation virtually not Costa Rica right. has uh <laughs> you know um is absolutely completely um um i don't want to say worthless it's 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 um it's a has been it's a dinosaur Your well thoughts? perhaps but you you know it's 
years ago, in 1997, I was, I'd had a 20-year practice of prayer and meditation, and I simply asked a generic request for guidance and inspiration. And yeah. I got a bomb dropped in my lap. I received a holographic pictorial storyboard outline, moving three-dimensional pictorial outline for my what became my book three years later, When Technology Fails. And in that oh, vision, I was... Yes directed to write something that can help people plan for and deal with a long-term collapse of central services and our highly technological machine oh. that makes our world go around. And my first thought was like, no effing way. I, I don't know all this stuff. I can't do this. And people, you know, right. Jesus called it the still small voice of spirit. And the yeah. little voice in my head said, well, nobody knows it all. And assured me uh-huh. that if I had the skills and talents that if I chose to take the assignment on that um, I'd get the inner and outer help I needed. Outer help meaning I'd, I'd, with my dogged determination and engineering and writing skills, I'd, I'd find the right. experts and all the materials I needed to fill in the holes in my experience. And, yes. and the inner help and meaning that I'd be guided yeah. at certain turns along the way to to make this happen. And it was a I've put in two years of labor, probably lost a year of wages, and over a three-year period of time, and then I updated, put another year of my life into updating it in 2008. And, you know, oh. I mean, I probably could have made more money working at McDonald's during that period of time than doing this. But uh, <laughs> yeah. but, it, but it, it, it's, it's a valuable, you know, I'm real proud of it, and it helps people. Oh, you should be. The subtitle, it, it helps you live more sustainably while the world's working, and it helps you plan for and deal with varying levels of of things not working well, whether it's an ice storm and the power's out for two or three days and you got to stay warm and keep your pipes from freezing, or whether it's you know Hurricane Katrina or whether it's a real big meltdown and things are down for years. It's like I would much rather fall back to the technology of, say, Abraham Lincoln and Thomas Jefferson than a Mad Max you know caveman scenario with no technology and eating eating worms and and digging up grass for its roots and stuff like that. So, you know, sure. I'm, I'm hoping sure. that I never have to use it. Sure. It's like car insurance. You know, you, nobody buys car exactly. insurance and wants to get into a wreck. You know, I'm just, right. I'm just or hoping fire that, or flood insurance. Exactly. I'm hoping that, you know, the world keeps going and everything's okay and no bad things happen. But um, I think that our trends are clear that one way or the other that uh, we're putting mon- – a monkey wrench is going to hit the spokes one of these days and, and our – and our big machine of the global economy is going to grind to an, a messy and ugly halt. Yes, yes, yes. I, I hear what you're saying. And it's interesting because there have also been a many forms of predictions over the course of centuries uh, from different civilizations. Uh, for instance, even the Mayan civilization. And uh, I'll be having on um, a Mayan uh, scholar called Kalaman on this evening. It's actually... Uh, repeat uh, interview I did with him in India some years back, but he's written a series of different books, and um, I cannot exclude the notion of either solar flares, solar storms affecting uh, in a major way life on Earth, as 
is so much a subject of yours, or an electromagnetic pulse for that matter, where life as, you know, the phrase is, life as we know it comes to an end, or history as we have known it comes to an end, and we are starting a new beginning. A whole other perspective is that uh, human beings are also evolving, and just very much like the uh, biological example of the caterpillar to the butterfly, we too are ready to take a step like that. But what does this transformation transition really look like? Is it something that's external, that's going to be happening to us, to our biology, let's say? Or is it something that is man-made that we, or something that we haven't protected ourselves from like all that you've been saying, but actually have the ability to do so. Your thoughts? Well, time will tell. You know, I, I I was gifted with this sort of a cosmic download and assignment to write this book, but um, whatever higher power it was, and, and I believe it was a higher power, because, you know, this is like 50 term papers wrapped up in one, and, and a term paper yes. for me was a major head-banging ordeal. And so this was uh-huh. just something I couldn't think up in my feeble brain and instantaneously, that's for sure. But yes. whatever it was that gifted that to me didn't didn't tell me exactly how it's going to happen and when it's going to happen or any of that. That information was not given to me, and I don't have it. I, but, yes. uh, you know, I hear you, I hear you. It would be interesting to see how the the solar cycles might match with such things as the Mayan calendar, just just as an interesting inquiry, you know, or any other sort of uh, predictive models that we've had that might come from other than, um, you know, computer programs, which don't seem like they're doing that well, including for uh, predicting climate change and global warming, because the damage is so severe. Uh, it seems like they can't really... Um, hold control for all of the variables that are affecting, you know, and creating a synergistic effect. It's like taking Yeah, I mean every couple of years they they keep increasing the level of 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 what the severity. effect they they think is coming, you know. And they're exactly, saying, "Oh, wow, exactly. we're already seeing effects that we thought we'd see in 30 years, we're seeing in 5 years kind of things." And so Exactly. Yeah, not you know, very accurate predictions. That's right. But but you're bringing attention to the whole subject here. Um, and we haven't even touched upon earthquakes, which happen a good deal more frequently, or volcanic activity, or tsunamis, or rising, you know, sea levels. And, we, you know, there are numerous things that you cover in both of your books that I feel are so worthwhile and you know our show is ending in just a a few minutes so we actually don't have the time to go into uh this uh, to go into you know what we can do um to prepare ourselves personally and our families and our villages and our communities and um uh nor what we can do on an outer level regarding our body politic and contacting our congressman and really bringing really focused attention uh, to these subjects uh, that be looked at on a uh, larger political level. But in, I, I, so therefore, 
we're going to, of course, have to have you back. <laughs> Not to mention, I'd love to speak to you about some of your green building projects, because that's of particular interest to me as well, and I'm sure to our audience. But could you give us at least a few outlines that our audience could be thinking about until we have you on again? Well, you definitely protection. want to think about um, you know, having having some supplies in your home, uh, protect, protection for yourself, um, and the ability to put things on your back. I mean, what do you see in a disaster? You see people walking down the roads. If it's not, if it's if it's a real disaster, they're not driving their cars, they're they're not watching their TV, they're not on the internet. You know, they're they're hoofing it. And so, yeah. the ability to both to shelter in place and, if necessary, to pick up and go. I mean, you know, thirty more than two-thirds of the population of the United States, or more than a third of the United States, 38%, I think, lives within 50 miles of a nuclear power plant. So, you know, in the back of your mind, know where those plants are and know that if you have a long-term grid-down situation, you're going to have to get out. You're going to have to somehow get you and your family upwind of those power plants and, and put some distance between you and them. And it's not a pleasant thought, and you hope hopefully it'll never happen. But think about like a little bicycle and trailers. Think about uh, networking with friends, maybe having a little mini farm somewhere out in the boonies where you can't make a living, but you know you pull together with a neighborhood and, and mm-hmm. you decide to invest in a little place with, with a pool of, say, 30 or 40 friends. You know, then it's yeah. very doable. Things that aren't maybe doable unless you have a lot of money and are, and are quite well off may not be doable for you alone, but you can pull together with a group. You know, it, it, the, the success when things really get hard is typically in groups, not not lone wolves. It's You know, in a group you can share resources, you can watch each other's back, you know, you can you can protect each other. In a, in a small lone wolf is much more easily picked off, and so yes. there's strength in you know, you're also you're all exactly you're also outlining a very real biological uh, fact of of the species, which is that we are social animals, we are social beings, and it was through uh, the social relationships and community that we managed to survive until this day because uh you know we all played different roles different uh, we had some leaders and some followers uh and people worked in um in unison with each other uh in community bonding is a big part of it in fact you know the latest neuroscience match shows that uh we are actually designed for bonding and you know uh and um releasing oxytocin through love and love ultimately is that connecting energy between us all that has us looking out for each other, um, watching each other's backs, as you say, and um, helping us uh, being willing to experience any level of danger on behalf of each other. It's just this very interesting thing. We could not get through to where we are as a species today if it weren't for the neurochemicals that are released when people spend time together. And uh, it's just a way to think about that we're really designed to be helping each other out and working with each other to get through difficult times. 
Well, thank you so much for having me on. And, you know, I, I urge people to take a look at whentechfails.com, and you can get totally free articles like, you know, a, uh, a grab-and-go kit, um, how to purify water, the low-tech way, uh, you know, protecting yourself from the ne- and family from the next super bubble or pandemic. Uh, various things, in they're totally free. They give you a sampling of what's available in the book and, and some really good information. So, you know, I now urge you to just... Do a, start with little things. You know, you don't. You, no one can do it all at once. Just start with little things. Something yep. so that you and your exactly. family would at least be able to drink some clean water. Think duck ponds and ditch water. You know, if you're in a big city uh-huh. and there's no power, you're going to be thirsty. And unless you can purify stuff, you're going to be drinking scummy duck pond and ditch water. And you'll be so thirsty you won't be able to stop yourself from drinking it. And that's not a very yeah. pleasant thought. So at least get that side of your act together so that you and your family Excellent. aren't saying, well, gee, Dad, how come i got to drink this ditch water and it's making me sick and i got diarrhea and I'm puking now? And, you know, yeah. couldn't you have thought ahead? Couldn't you have done something so I didn't have to do this? Oh, boy. Matt Stein, you are a real gift. Thank you so much for those years, for the uh, the great uh, download that you received and that you respected it sufficiently to uh, write it all down and to share it with us. We really appreciate it and would like so much to have you back on again another time. Yeah, I'll be happy to do that. And I like to leave people with my motto, and I ask people to do their best to change the world and do their best to be ready for the changes in the world. And thanks again for having me on tonight. Indeed. It's my pleasure, Matt. Take care now. We'll talk soon. That was Matt Stein, who uh, is a trained mechanical engineer at MIT, who has done uh, a brilliant amount of work and lots of research to bring to us all his two best-selling books, When Disaster Strikes, A Comprehensive Guide to Emergency Planning and Crisis Survival, and When Technology Fails, A Manual for Self-Reliance, Sustainability and Surviving the Long Emergency, uh, several of which he outlined in uh, today's show. So certainly go visit him at his website and uh, learn more. He's got, as he said, a number of different uh, downloads. You can take articles that he has amassed over the course of time that we can all benefit from. Now, as he said, it's sort of like car insurance, fire or flood. Nobody ever wants to use it, that's for sure but not to be aware of what it could be that we are facing, and even just simple calls to first aid and having a hands-on greater knowledge. That should be something that is part of our elementary school and junior high school. It should just be a, a required course that everybody gets trained in and schooled in because, you know, this is life. Life comes, life goes, and what we can do hands-on to help each other out in these fundamental ways is, uh, I mean, it could be truly life-saving. So uh, this is all part of the awareness that Matthew Stein is bringing to the foreground. And it's funny, a lot of people who are cultural creatives, people who consider themselves uh, highly spiritual and inspired by the higher 